Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 1st, 2021. The sheer ID numbers for Friday, July 30th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 17,456. That's 17456. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 17,457. That's 17457. This morning, A Vision for You presents Acceptance is the Answer. The Big Book teaches on page 143, that to get over drinking, or for us, compulsive overeating, will require a transformation of thought and attitude. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, an inward rearrangement that actually transforms us We experience a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, a profound alteration in our attitude toward life, in our attitude toward our fellows, and in our attitude towards the world around us as a result of our new spiritual condition. Most of us have come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the constant defeat, frustration, and despair we experienced as compulsive overeaters. Most of us have spent years or decades on the Research and Development Committee trying to find a way out of the disease of compulsive overeating. As compulsive overeaters, it is through utter defeat that we are able to take our first steps towards transformation and freedom. We admit we are powerless over food, and we cannot overcome compulsive overeating with our own resources. We accept the further fact that dependence upon a higher power can do this impossible job. Acceptance of these facts proves to be the very beginning towards freedom and a new state of consciousness and being. Joining us today to speak about her transformation as a result of the 12 Steps of Recovery is Ruth M., a recovered compulsive overeater from Illinois. Ruth is both a student and a teacher of the Big Book, and it's with great appreciation and love that I welcome Ruth M. to the line. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. Um, I want to thank you, A Vision for You, to be able to speak today. Um, It's a great honor. It's always a great honor. I look back at what I when I what I was what what I I was when I came into program, and uh, it is not because of what I was that gave me this today. It's what happened as a result of the twelve steps. So um, 
I, uh, when I was meditating on doing this talk, which this talk will be my personal story, I've never given that on a vision for you. So um, I'm thinking, you know, I've been abstinent 34 years. So I'm going to, of course, give you a lot of the long picture of what happens after you're abstinent for more than, you know, five or 10 years. What, what, what's the long picture of this? And so we know that in our program, uh, I, I do want to, of course, give credit, as I always do, to Joe and Charlie, two people I spent a weekend with in 1986, uh, and then another weekend in 1987. They were big book thumpers, long since have died. Um, but they gave me the directions of the big book uh, in a way that I left there, and I understood it. I had never understood before. And since that time, you know, I, you know, I struggled. I, I immediately said, this is what I got to do. I got to do what they tell me to do. And um, and anyway, I've been absent since November 15th, 1986. So I, I always want to give them credit. I mean, the problem for the, I came in program on August 20th, 1982. The problem wasn't the program. The problem was me. Um, but I somehow would read this book only at meetings because I didn't think I needed to read it any other time. So I'm the one that caused that four years away. Don't repeat what I did. I mean, you don't have to take four years. <laughs> I say that. But um, when I look at the program as they define it, what is, this, what is the problem? Step one. What is the solution? Step two. And how do you get that solution? Steps three through 12. Um, so what is the problem? Well, the problem um, that I'm powerless over food that my life's unmanageable. That was a problem, um, no question. I, I had, I didn't at seven years old say, man, I'd like to grow up and be a glutton. Man, that would be just a great life. And I had no adults to urging me to be a glutton. That was never there, but nevertheless, that's what I ended up doing. Uh, so that's very important. In fact, that's the cement foundation in which the house is built on. A house built on sand will not stand. So we have to have the foundation. We have to admit 100% with absolute perfection that we're powerless over our food, that our life's unmanageable. But we do have 11 steps then to deal with the mental obsession because Dr. Silker tells us in Dr.'s opinion that the problem is twofold. It is a physical allergy yielding a craving, and it's a mental obsession. He also tells us we have to have entire abstinence. So if we have entire abstinence, from that point on, we no longer have a physical allergy. We don't because we don't put it in our body. So step one takes care of that first half of the problem, and the next 11 steps will take care of the mental obsession. So once I got entirely abstinent, then all my energy from that point forth, which has been more than a couple decades, has been on that mental obsession. Um, I don't know. I didn't keep track. But I would say for sure within two years of getting abstinent, the mental session went away. Uh, but that doesn't mean it stays away. Uh, still, all my work now is on my character because I'm an, I'm an addict. I got an addict mind. And my addict mind comes right back if I don't put all of my energy into doing God's will. Acquiring and developing a relationship with God is what it's all about once the food's in place. And the uh, session is gone, going through the 12 steps, but then we have to continue that. So I like to refer to some words on page 51. Uh, this is the fifth line on page 51. When many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God 
is today the most important fact of their lives, they present a powerful reason why one should have faith. So the objective of this program for me is the consciousness of the presence of God in my life. And if I don't give you that in this talk, then I have failed in my talk because otherwise it's just a diet. It's it's group therapy, but it's not the 12 steps. On page 29, the first sentence in the second paragraph says, each individual in the personal stories, which is I'm giving you my personal story today, describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. So if I don't do what the big book tells tells me to do, then it's not going to talk. Okay, so for me, um, I... I will start off with, as we go, you know, what happened, you know, what what it was like at the beginning. Well, at the beginning, um, the, the beginning, I think the most important influence in my life was my mother. There is absolutely no question about that. And my mother, um, I, I really don't know what the reason why, but she was not mother material. She was not capable of being a mother. It, it just wasn't in her. Uh, it would be speculation to say why, and it's really irrelevant, other than she was just a bad mom. Um, she was bona fide crazy. She was insane. She was in state hospital. She was very violent. And so being raised by a mother that was violent and very neglectful put me in a state of survival. Um I've told a story, and you know, some, when you have high trauma in a child, you don't always remember all of the details of it. Sometimes you can just not even remember them. Some you can remember, some not. So in this one, I don't have all the pictures, but I have enough of it. And all I remember is I'm standing on a chair next to my older sister, 12 years older. So I'm standing on a chair, so I'm kind of now at eye level. Uh, and she was making, she was making something, um, and then the next thing I remember, I'm running away in a panic as my mother's screaming that she's going to kill me. She has a knife and she's swinging it at me. And I'm, I'm, running, out, I'm running out of the house to try to get away for, from her. Um, now, she uh, probably is one of us. She was quite overweight, so she wasn't super fast. And uh, once I could get a few steps ahead of her, she probably wouldn't catch me. She wasn't going to be quick on her feet. Um, and, and I remember that look in her eye, and that look was that look uh, we would I would just say uh, crazy, but today we would say psychotic. And when she went psychotic, she didn't know who she was, what she was doing. She was in another. She was in. She was crazy, and she could do anything under crazy. Uh, when she was here and knew who she was, she could beat the crap out of me. But when she was crazy, she could go farther. And she had that look in her eye. The next piece of that I remember is um, I had gone, um, I lived on a farm with 240 acres, so I got away from the house. And I remember now it was darker, a little darker, um, not dark, but I meant it was maybe like towards sunset. I don't know how long I was gone from the house. I don't remember that. I don't have that piece of the memory. But I remember talking through the screen to my one of my younger sisters, uh, if I could get in the house, was what it, what it would be, could I survive if I got in the house or did I just have to just stay away? Um, and so it's just little pieces of the picture, but it does sum up the relationship I had with my mother. So it wasn't fear, it was terror. It wasn't like, um, 
oh, at 2 o'clock every afternoon she was crazy, so we just got away from her and the rest of the day was fine. It was unpredictable. There was nothing that actually caused it to happen. Um, now, me and a little mind thought I had to do something to protect myself. So my response was to be wallpaper on wall. Uh, I was to never speak. I wasn't to talk. I wasn't to make notice. Nobody noticed I existed, that I even breathed. Um, I never really took a deep breath in a way during all of that early years of my childhood. It was just, it was just terror. And it was a secret that um, I, we weren't going to talk about. I remember another time my neighbor's child was in the living room playing with us, and I was there, and my brother, he was the only male child, and so he was not beaten. He was treated differently because he was male, just the females were beaten. And, and so he made a cried-out so- sound. This neighbor's kid wasn't doing anything. My mother rushed in backhanded that kid, he flew through the air, bounced off the wall, and bounced back to the middle of the room where he originally was. Wow, that woke me up too. He, he leaves, you know, injured, and uh, he, she hit him in the face hard. And uh, we didn't say anything, but we never, ever had another child in our home from that day forth. It was too dangerous. So in that panic, I had to develop a personality. And... And my personality was I was just going to, I was going to parent myself. I was a child being my own parent. I didn't do it well, but I did it okay. I did it enough to get by. And my siblings, my two younger siblings, they did the same thing. They parented themselves. And we were like three silos there. And then my brother was the male, so he was in his own silo too. And we just tried to do it each as best we could. My personality was I was going to make it. I wasn't going to let somebody beat me down. I was going to succeed. I didn't know quite what that meant, but I was going to be tough, in charge, and make it work. And I would have eaten at that time, but there was no real access to food. I was, I mean, I was anemic when I was a kid. How could you be anemic? We had chickens and cows and pigs on the farm, and we had a vegetable. But my mom was, you know, she didn't really fix much. It wasn't nutritious, so. Um, so I didn't even get proper nutrition. Um, but I really didn't have access. And back then, we're talking into the 50s, even into the 60s, food wasn't like it is now, where it's everywhere and everywhere you walk around. So I just didn't have access. That's the only reason I didn't eat compulsively at that point. Uh, and so, but what did happen when I was 15, at that point, I had access. I now was old enough I could get a hold of it. And so it began. And for me, that then became my comforter, my one that somehow would take the edge off, would make things kind of be okay. Uh, a key event in all this when I, also my mom was having affairs all over the place. Um, and my older sister, 12 years older, ended up having to raise us. Well, at 13, she had a two-year-old me, a one-year-old and a newborn, and had no idea what she was doing. So she hated doing that. And my sense is a little one is she hated me because, you know, I'm a little one. But she hated us, hated us because of the existence of that had to take up all of her time except when she was in school. So that wasn't a good option. And my father, it, it was beyond him. I, he wasn't trying to be absent. I mean, he was a great farmer. He did what he needed. Uh, he always left everything to, you know, mom because that's what the women always had to do. Um, and was a very shy and never talked. He was not a... That was just not his personality. 
so I, he didn't mean bad, but he just didn't seem to get in there and, and just force her to stop, although you couldn't force her to stop and do anything. Finally, at 12, she ran away with some guy, one of the guys she was having an affair with. And the key in that was, was very important to me because at that point, my teen years were, I, I threw God away. I said, you know, if you're such a, a God, then why did you give me my mother? You are not worthy of me giving you attention. And I really desperately wanted a, a mom, not my mom, but somebody that would act the role of a mother, and that didn't come. So I threw God away. So now this survival technique as a kid now became, I really had to run the show. I had to get it all to work out. I didn't have adults that were in that role that could parent me. And I did the best I could, and God was nowhere in my life. And I, I went to the motions. I went to church, you know. I'm a teenager, you know, right? And I went to the motions, but, but it was just through the motions. There was no direct intimate relationship with God because I, I was upset with God. I was angry at God. So the eating continued, you know, from 15 on. But one of the things I did is I got really involved in sports. And, and I played on all the high school sport teams. So even though I was eating and get, started getting some weight, I, I remember 15, I had to go get my um, driving permit. At that point, I was 5'4 and 113 pounds. So, you know, sophomore high school, I was fine. I was healthy weight. I had always been a healthy weight. Uh, but by the end of that year, I was at 129 pounds, even with all playing the sports. And by the time I graduated from high school, I was now 5'6", 131, 139 pounds. So I was still, the weight wasn't appearing, but I was already an addict. I just didn't know it. The sports, all that activity kind of wore off, you know, it kind of, it kind of restricted the amount of the, gain, the, the weight gain. Um, but, I, but my personality was there. You see, the personality will drive us. The personality, the added personality will drive us to the substance we, or behavior we've chosen. Um, I went to college. That was what I was supposed to do, and I did. And uh, for my, my father, even though, you know, his thing was his beha- he wanted to make sure that all of us not only graduated from high school. My parents, neither went, no, none of them went to high school. Um, and back then, it was eight years of grade school, four years of high school. There was no middle school. And so they, they never went on, and he wanted to make sure. And, and so he provided, and I went, and I got a degree. I was very involved in sports. I played on all the sports teams. Um, I refereed, umpired in all of them, but soccer, because that one I, I, I knew to play, but I didn't know the referee. So the part-time job helped paid. And so in that, but even with all the activity, I, I gained 19 pounds in those four years. Um, so I was now off and running. Now I'd hit the point of being overweight. Um, I, I crossed that threshold the time I graduated. Um, but I was still just self-will run riot, and the food was still trying to comfort me. Because at this point, when I left um, at high school, I had made a decision that I was going to be a different person. This very extremely uh, uh, introverted, shy, couldn't speak. I knew an answer. I'd never raise my hand in class. I'd be, if I went to a high school reunion, they'd say, did you go here? I, know, I never spoke. I, was, I carried it over into school. But in college, I was going to do something different. I was going to make myself have, I was going to speak up. I was going to have a personality where I was going to not just be this, this, wallfire, this wallpaper on the wall. And so I went to college with that intent, and I did that. I got involved in sports. I, I got involved in student government. 
Um, I can tell you, I did graduate. My grades were just whatever, you know, like, you know, C plus, B minus. My education was out of the classroom, but my education was to try to begin to learn some social skills because I didn't have them. I didn't get taught social skills by my mom. Um, and so I, I, I really tried hard. But again, the, the, the food was getting stronger. And then when I graduated from college, um, I went and got a job with uh, Vista, which now is AmeriCorps. I did that a year, and then I got a job uh, working with Peace Corps. I'm sorry, two years in, in, in AmeriCorps, and then three years in Peace Corps. And so on I went, but again, it started picking up. So the two years out of um, in, in uh, AmeriCorps, I gained 19 pounds. So now, uh, yeah, I'm definitely, now I'm going to get into the obese category. So I'm out of control, but I'm on a quest to do something and get something done. Now, I had made myself be the person I thought I should be. I found that successful, and but I was on overdrive. And so fortunately, by God's grace, I got into my career that I was supposed to be in, which was social work. I mean, God's grace only because I was driven just to be successful. But the key here was yeah, the personality the addict personality got worse because if we're going to save the world, uh, we need to put that first and forget about all this, rah, 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 and all this kind of, we need to get something done here. And so I was intolerant towards people that didn't have a passion to make the world a more just, equitable society. And, and so that then would, I would be angry about it, and then I would eat about it. So I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't warm and fuzzy. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and, uh, and so what happened was that addict personality had to have food to comfort it and then try to make others be what I thought they should be. No acceptance of life on life's terms. None, none. Uh, and so no question that it was going to get worse. So here I am, and I've, I've done, I've worked a year in southwest Georgia, a year in New York City. I've now gone and got some little training in Costa Rica, in Nicaragua. It, it's three weeks after I get there. Shamora is assassinated, uh, and civil war breaks out. So I'm in the middle of civil war. Now, my personality, I'm going to make it work. And at one point, um, after the first offensive of the war, they brought us all into the Capitol. There was 120 Peace Corps volunteers, and they said, no problem. You know, we, we expected you originally to honor your two-year commitment, but because of what's going on here, you can all go home. It's no problem with us. We understand. 100 went home and 20 stayed. I'm one of those 20. And the job I had, I switched into another, and it was the first uh, agency in Nicaragua, an adoption agency. And uh, we were in the middle of civil war, they were orphan children, and we, would, and we would work and get them placed with some Nicaraguan parents. And I'm right there in the middle of the war. And, of course, when you're young, you think you're, you're not going to get killed. But, yet, yeah, still in the middle of the war, you know. Um, I remember one night we took shifts because we could hear the fighting was so close and it could get to us. I, I lived in Managua, the capital. And, and if it did, who knows what would happen to us. You've seen pictures of Syria right now, and here, here we are in this war. Uh, but that somehow was necessary, and I had no problems doing it. 
But that edge was okay, but yet, again, the intolerance of, come on, we all got to do this. One of my good friends was gang raped by the Guardian, which was the military police combined into one. Uh, another friend of mine was a Peace Corps volunteer. There, he was shot at, attempted to kill him. So eventually the embassy was closed down, and I, we were evacuated, and I was then I went to Chile. So I went from one dictator to another, uh, from Samosa to Pinochet, um, and then I did something. Well, I want to see I want to see the world. So instead of getting on that plane with that plane ticket they gave me. I hitchhiked, and I decided to hitchhike down from Valparaiso, Chile, down to Ushuaia, the tip of South America and Argentina, and then hitchhike all the way up. That's probably a pretty interesting idea. Most people don't do that and carry their home on their back. But after seven months, I had traveled about 8,000 miles hitchhiking. Uh, but in there was a God thing. The God thing was, um, and, two, and there were three guys that, were trying, you know, they were making a move on me, like probably trying to rate. One was definitely, one was definitely, but then I, you know, hit him and, and left and kind of thought, you know, see, that's crazy. You've got to be a little more concerned traveling by yourself. But anyway, I uh, fell down, broke both ones in my left leg, and, uh, and I had to have surgery. And there I am in Argentina, in seven months and all of this. And when that heals up, um, yeah, I know I have to come home. Um, so I get on the plane, come home. But while I was there, I was with a woman who had been in AA, got sober, stopped seeing AA, got back in the alcohol, and it was January 1st of 1982, a hot summer day down there, season of reverse. And she said, I want to stop drinking. I got to stop drinking. I said, great, I'll stop. And God's grace there, because I would have been an alcoholic. I was starting to drink more. Um, but I, I agreed to help her out. And while she went to AA, I went to Al-Anon, the same, same building. There were meetings were running at the same time. I began there, and while I was there, I learned of a woman who had lost 50 kilos, and that's 110 pounds. I said, wow, what is she going to? Oh, it's a group that's just like this one. It's got some steps to it. Oh, great, I'll go. And that was January 7th, 1982, and I attended that meeting, and um, and I just treated it as a diet club. Now, the first five steps were verbatim to um, the 12 steps. They merged six and seven into one step, and they had a step on exercise, so it technically wasn't a way, but um, I hadn't gotten to step five. So in that way was kind of the beginning. And when I came back, um, I was helping a, a guy who wanted a, a book. Um, company produces 12-step literature, and he wanted it in Spanish. I did it for him. They sent me the catalog, and there I learned about OA. Uh, when I came back from overseas, um, which I had gone on my first diet, uh, you know, when I left and went to Nicaragua, lost the weight, stopped, and then I started, I put it back on, then I lost it again, and then I came back to the U.S. And when I did, I got the catalogs, and I, wow, that's interesting. And I put on 20 pounds in, uh, in those four months, so I was starting to go back up. And uh, I thought, well, I'll go to this. It sounds like the thing I did, and that's what I did. I went to OA. And uh, I have to be honest, I came into OA to use it as a diet club. I had no other reason that I was there. I hated that you talked about God because I had nothing to do with God, and you hugged me, and I hated that too. But you were free, and I stayed. And that's really the honest truth. I should have been thrown out of OA because anybody else would have thrown me out. Um, but no, uh, you didn't because you couldn't, and so I got to stay in spite of me being totally obnoxious because I immediately lost my 20 pounds. I was 20 pounds overweight at that point. I have a sponsor who laughs every time she says, yeah, because she was at 280 
you know, at one point, like, 20 pounds? What do you mean? So here I come into OA. I've dieted twice, lost the weight, and starting to put 20 pounds, and I show up in OA. That's a high bottom. But I came in, lost it right away, and told everybody I could that I should sponsor them because they were fast, I wasn't, and they needed my help. And fortunately, you were sane enough that not one of you took me up on it, which is, that's another grace of God, because I would have had to try to track you down to make an amends. I didn't have to, because nobody took me up on it. Um, so I was a mess at the beginning. I was not willing to work the program according to the big book. I didn't need to. I lost my 20 pounds without opening up this damn book, except at meetings, when I have to read a paragraph and you talk about it. This was in the 80s, and uh, we didn't have but one book when I came in program, Overeaters Anonymous. So it was what we used. We used the, we used the big book in age 12 and 12 at all of our meetings. And so, but I never worked the program. I didn't need a sponsor. Why would I have a sponsor? I can lose 20 pounds on my own. So what happened, of course, is because I took all the credit, I then began to eat. And this time, for the first time only, I didn't just immediately lose the weight. Now I was miserable. But I had to be miserable. God had to put me in a position for, to get the message you were trying to give me. And so, but I was still messed up. The addict mind had to run the show and be in charge and get things the way it's supposed to be. But yes, then of course, uh, meeting Joe and Charlie. And, uh, and that changed everything. It changed everything. Because I now wanted what the big book had to offer. Because I'd been at an event, OA event here in St. Louis, and I, and I, there were two people there. One was seven years absent, one was eight. And I said, well, I can get absent. I can lose money, but I can't keep it off. I can't stay absent. So I went up to one of them and I said, well, what, what, what do you do to, you know, stay absent? She says, oh, dear, I, I worked the program according to the big book. And I big book, big book. I think that's that blue book. And what I did is I went around and found everybody in St. Louis that had some abstinence for a period of time. And almost every one of them worked the program according to the big book. Well, okay, I'll work the protocol in the main book. And, um, you know, but Joe and Charles one explained it to me so I could understand it. And so I did. I worked the program according to each step. And, yes, you know, this is what has to happen. What is the problem? Yeah, I am powerless. I can't stop eating this damn food. And, it, and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not able to do this. Um, and my life is unmanageable. And then, well, the solution has to be a power greater than me. Oh, that's God. Oh, damn, that's what you're going to tell me. I remember that you keep mentioning God, God. Uh, but okay, okay. Um, I'm finding the people that get abstinent, stay abstinent, have, seem to have this relationship with God, a relationship with God, which I don't have. And so I'm willing to do it. It was very primitive, okay, but I agreed that I had to have something greater than me. And yes, I, yes, I had to... Um, turn my will over to God, and then I had to do that damn fourth step, fourth step. Oh, my God. Now, I could do the fourth step, but the fifth step, I thought my sponsor would die of a heart attack in the middle. It was so horrific what I had done in my life. Well, it was overkill, but, you know, when you're sick, you're sick. So, um, but I gave it away, but the key was this. This is the key. There was a statement made, and she said, oh, God, your mom rules you from the grave, doesn't she? And what she meant is, though my mother, who had died by then, even though she was dead, my hatred towards her still controlled me in such a level that it, it dominated and seeped into every relationship and everything because I was so resentful for her. I blamed her for everything. Well, my family did too. I blamed her for everything. And that resentment 
then was there. It was just raw, exposed. And and it, it, I wasn't ever going to be able to get absence to absence if I didn't deal with it. And I knew she was right. And that was the most important thing I learned from doing step five. I had to do the rest of the steps. And yes, of course, my defects, I had, I understood it very primitively again, but I understood that this, you know, um, I was still full, I was full of shame at that point still. Uh, later it went away on my, its own. I didn't know how that happened, but it, through the step work. But at that point, oh my God. And, and I, and yes, and, and yes, I, I have, I have this I have this personality that's gonna get me in trouble regardless. And um and then I came to the point step nine and step nine was gonna be a real problem, you see, uh, because I wasn't gonna make amends to my mom. I mean I knew I need to let go of the resentment, but I still hated her, so how can I do it? And it was uh, uh, uh. and um and but I had to do it because I never would be at peace, and I knew that. So I did know that, and I did have to make amends. And I, I prayed to God, "How am I going to make amends? Uh, she's dead. Oh, you know how God works. He works in mysterious ways. He had had me listen to a tape a couple months before, in which the woman said she had a similar relationship with I couldn't remember if it was a mother or father, but the parent." And and she had written a letter and gone to the graveyard and wrote it and re- read it over the graveyard and she felt peace and I knew immediately when I prayed to God it popped in my mind that's what I had to do, so I went ahead and I wrote my letter and I looked up you know my mom had run away and it was about three and a half hours north of me in Illinois and I'd, I'd never been there of course, because um, she had gone and after a great after high school I'd only see her twice for about five minutes each time so. It, you know, she wasn't in my life, but she was in my life as far as in what was going on in my head. So I tell the story because it was huge. Uh, you know, Joe and Charlie was huge, but this was very hard. This was very, because it changed everything. So I get in the car and I drive up to this town and there's some, it's in February and there's some little snowflakes in the air and nobody's on the street. And, uh, and I don't know where the graveyard is, of course. So I roll down my window and there's a guy walking by. I don't know if it was an angel or a guy. I don't know. And I said, I yelled out of my window, Where, where's the graveyard? And he told me. So I drove to the graveyard. And I got there and I said, uh-oh, a lot of graves, a lot of, a lot of top tombstones here. How am I going to find her? There's nobody to tell me how. Drove around, but I wouldn't find her. She's, she, Melanie was uh, like water in her hand. She wouldn't have a big tombstone. It was going to be a small one on the ground. I was going to have to go out and find it. So then I proceeded to turn off the car and tell God off. I won't use the swear words because it's being recorded, but I trust you, I was swearing at him. Here I am. I worked these steps. I was trying to have a relationship with you, you know, and I'm doing my best, and you send me into the freaking gold. My ass is going to turn into an icicle. I remember that piece of it. And what in the hell do you think you're doing? Now, you think you're so great, and everybody tells me you're so great. Well, you have just blown it here because I don't know where it is, and I'm going to freeze before I find it. I mean, okay, I left up the profanity. But anyway, I told God off. And so there was a thought came in my mind. Well, go over in that direction. He hasn't been dead that many years, and it looks kind of like the newer part of the cemetery. So I got out of the car, and I was walking and walking. And all of a sudden, I stopped. And when I looked down, it was my mother's tombstone. I walked right to it. 
wow, I knew then I better make amends quick to God because I just told God off and he just got me to the tombstone. So I then had, I'm sorry, that was really bad. I've been trying to have a relationship. I'm trying to get this going. And, you know, I was really, that was really mean. And I was angry. I shouldn't have been angry. So I cleaned it up with God. God was probably laughing at me, but uh, I cleaned it up. So I pulled out the letter and I read the letter. And I felt relief uh, in my head, I'd say, at this point. But I felt some relief because I had gone and wrote a letter saying I was sorry that I had not kept the commitment I had made to OA, that I would carry the message to anybody that needed the message. I would do that. And in my hatred of her, at that point, I had she was still alive. It was the very end of her life, um, which I didn't know because we got the word that she had died without. She never even told the people up there where she lived that she had children, so no, nobody knew. But, um, but I had not tried to find her. And so I had to apologize for that, that I had not brought the gift to her. That's what the letter said. And I felt relief, and I'd made amends. I turned around, and I walked away, and all of a sudden I stopped. I did not stop. I, I stopped, but it was God stopped me. And I turned around, and I came back, and I looked out the tombstone. I, I was in an altered state. I don't even know why. And I just looked at the tombstone, and out of my mouth came without me knowing it. And I said to her, I love you. Oh, my God. In that second, I felt physically the shoes bolter came off. My mind, it left. The emotions left. Everything left. This huge weight that had weighed me down for my whole life was gone. And I can tell you to this day, decades later, not one second of my life have I felt resentment towards her. I really did love her underneath, but I wouldn't have known it unless I'd been willing to let go of the resentment. That changed everything. The next weekend, because I'm, an, I'm like, wow, this is great, so I proceed to go out and make amends there. 16 amends the next Saturday. I mean, I start, and I'm, go, I'm where I live, and I'm going around to all my relatives and everybody. Well, it's a small town, and they all got on their phone, and they're saying, has Ruth showed up to your place? No, well, she showed up here. There's something going on. She's saying she's sorry. Now, listen, you've got to understand, I never said I was sorry to anybody about anything. And uh, I was, and they were like, oh, my God. So my sister that's one year younger, I started with her. She wasn't home, and I had gone around to everybody. It's now late at night, and I'm, I'm going to run back around to see if I can hit her. I mean, get to her place. And I show up her door, and uh, she lets me in, and she looks very apprehensive. I said I was there to say something. She goes, okay. She looks down at the floor. I just want to tell you she's into to soap operas. And in soap operas, uh, any time somebody says they're sorry uh, to everybody, that's right before they kill themselves in the show. So anyway, the, the, the wires were all there, and everybody thought I was going to kill myself because I was saying I'm sorry to everybody. So anyway, I tell her, and, and she tells me that. And I'm like, no, no, this is the same thing I'm, I've ever done. And she wasn't, she wasn't convinced, but okay. So I made my amends. And today I can laugh about that. Uh, and and all of that. And then 10, 11, 12 every day. The thing that happened in all of this, and this is the key, Dr. Um, Dr. Paul O., who wrote uh, Dr. Alcohol Addict, and then it was called Acceptance is the Answer in the fourth edition, page 443 in the third edition, page 417 in the fourth edition. And this is key on this page. Once I, I accepted... I accepted the program. And again, it was primitive, but I accepted it. Things all change. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation 
some fact in my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happened in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as what needs to be changed in me and my attitude. Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage, all the men and women merely players. Forgot to mention that I was the chief critic. I was always able to see the flaw in every person, every situation. And I was always glad to point it out because I knew you wanted perfection just as I did. AA and acceptance have taught me that there is a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us. That we all are all that we are all children of God and we each have a right to be here. When I complain about me or about you, I'm complaining about God's handiwork. I'm saying that I know better than God. This fit me to a T when I first read this story. This was me. I did not accept anything. I was trying to run my, my life. This is the key. I understand. I am not hard on myself today. I did the best I could do as a child. I had to raise myself. This was my best option. There is no way I could be harsh to myself. I had no better option, and I took it, and I did it. But what happens when we take what we can out of a situation and we use it and we get through it, we then continue to use it, and we continue to really use it, and it became overkill. It became too much. I went too far. I didn't even let God run my life. And so even though this had worked, its excess became my liability. What was an asset? as a child, became a liability as an adult. I never was able to shift and say, whoa, you, t- you now need to see how God worked the miracle in your life. I didn't go there. Instead, I took credit. I tried to make everybody conform to the way I wanted, and I could not accept them because I couldn't accept them because I couldn't accept me. I thought when I came to the program, if you knew me, you would hate me like I knew I knew me, and so I'm not going to show you me. And so that set me up for failure. And then all this crusade about doing all these things, they were good, and many things happened. God worked through me in spite of me. Um, one of the things happened, right, within the same month and I made this ninth step, and then I got a job working with children who had been abused and neglected. For 18 years, I worked with all these children. Oh, my God, they taught me so much. They made me in a way, I mean, it was just unbelievable. And I didn't get the job for what they provided me. I didn't try to get anything out of them, but they gave me. You see, I decided I was going to love every one of them. By words or action, I was loving everyone because no one loved me like that, and I was going to give it to them. And they, in return, especially if you've been abused and neglected, they loved me in a level because some of them had never been loved in their whole life. They had no one either. And and they loved me, and these little ones loved me. And, oh, my God, I, I never took the job for that. But they taught me. They taught me how to parent them by what they asked of me, and I ended up parenting, parenting me, but parenting me the little one that never got loved. And what happened is God took this thing that happened to me, my mother, 
Then he gave me the solution. In spite of my rejecting God, he gave me the 12 steps where I healed. And then in healing, I gave it to them. I gave away the 12-step program to all these children, as children would get it. And I did this. And so this was the gift from God. God gave me my mother. God gave me my father so that in my healing, I would help children heal at a level I couldn't have done if I didn't have the direct experience. That was God's gift. My, my childhood was a gift. God used it to help others, hundreds of children. That's a miracle. My whole life, today I look back over decades at every single thing that happens, I see a positive. My mother, a positive. She never taught me social skills. What did you teach kids in the 50s and early 60s? You taught them, if they were females, to grow up, find a guy, marry the guy, have the children, and raise the children for the guy. You were inferior to the guy. The guy called the shots. You did your job as a virgin to get married and to be a mother once you got married. That was it. There was not a lot of other options. They were there, but they were not accentuated. They were not emphasized. And I didn't have to fight anything within me to go and do what I did because I never had to unlearn and be accountable to my mother for not doing what what females should do. So I was free. I was free to go. Go and serve. Go overseas. Go and serve. And that's, you know, and then another gift I got was I was a lesbian. This was a great gift because I then did not, at that point, lesbians couldn't be them. They couldn't be, you know, and if you were married, they found out. You lost your child even if you beat the shit out of you and your kids. The father still got it. I never got married. I never had kids, but I, and I wasn't allowed back then. But by being a lesbian, I could put all my time into the children and, what, and did not put energy into raising children. Nothing against it. It's great. But it wasn't my story. And so God gave me that gift also. Everything's been a gift. And I, I cannot thank God enough. Um, I remember along the way, as I got further along in my recovery in this 10, 11, 12 work, what I found out was, um, I remember one time a person had thought something about me uh, which wasn't true, and I wanted to judge and then God came in this thought, because it wasn't mine, I wouldn't have thought this. It's time you grow up. You're not supposed to be judging anymore. You're not even supposed to judge. And what I learned was, if I do not judge, which I've been that critic as this page talks about, I did not accept, then I would get resentments because they weren't doing what I wanted. But if I don't judge, I don't get resentments. I don't get hurt, and I don't need to forgive because I'm not even been hurt because I don't know their story. Wow, what a radical rearrangement of ideas and motives and attitudes which used to guide me. I'm now even not supposed to judge people. I'd like to say I've done that perfectly since, but I, I have to tell the truth. But I always know that it's no judgment, no criticism. It's God's love that has to come through me. Wow, just like I did with the kids. I did it with adults then. Life has been... It's been unbelievable, and uh, recently I learned something about my family, which is no surprise with my family. I learned, I was led to believe uh, my father was killed suddenly in 1975 in a highway accident. He didn't come home from work, 
And he had raised us as a single parent when mom left, and he did his best. Um, but I was led to believe that um, I didn't get an inheritance, uh, that my youngest sister, my brother and I, we, we weren't, and my older sister and one, they basically got everything. Okay, I, I came to, I, I accepted that to the 12 steps. I was fine. You know, dad had changed his mind, hadn't said anything, but that was his right. I went on. But that was a gift that I didn't know that I was supposed to get an inheritance, that all along it kind of like didn't happen that way. We were supposed to all each get a fifth. Um, because when I was 22 and my father was killed and I, I just started working, graduated from college, I simply made a commitment. I am going to, I'm going to make it work. Now, I wasn't in 12 steps, but I was going to make it work. And so when I learned 45 years later that it was false information, I'm at peace with that. I, I'm not angry at my family. I made peace with my mother in the graveyard. I made peace with my father. I made peace with my siblings. I made peace. Because acceptance is the answer, and they are who they are, and they all did the best they could. And my older sister, I mean, she's 13 trying to raise three kids. Okay. She was brutal, brutal. She had a lot of my mother's, you know, she was very angry and resentful. She hated my mom. And, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's all, it's at peace. Um, and people, um, the last story I want to share is that, um, you know, uh, a mistake I'd made, and it was 2003, and I had decided, I, I came to me very, you know, casually, that I'm going to really go into my heart, and I'm really, because this part of doing things, i got to put it on the back burner, and I'm now going to really lead with a heart and really come and let that blossom, because it, it's, it, i got to let my, my personality all of it blossom. And so there was a group, an OA group that I attended at that time when nobody was absent but me. And, and uh, it was one of those they wanted, it, it, was, it was people that had been there a long time and they, you know, they went to, before the meetings they would get together and pig out and then come to meetings <laughs> under the influence. And there was a core group that did that for decades, some of them. And I'm the only one absent. And my sponsor said, listen, the reason they're so mad at you is because you're absent. Well, anyway, they got together and decided uh, they couldn't get rid of me, but they got to decide to have a group conscious where they told me how bad I was. Um, that one said I was evil, not to even be near me, you know, it was crazy crap. But when you're drunk on food. Uh, but what happened then was the, I was on the board of trustees at the time in, in a group, and those people, I thought, well, okay, you know, they're not in the middle of this. Well, they were like, well, I don't know. We'll have to check into this. And they didn't tell me. And they gave these people an hour to bitch about me and then didn't tell me they'd done it. And then they were watching these meetings. And, I mean, are you kidding me? I was crushed by this. Crushed. Um, my safety and my security was away. It was a place where, very naively, even though I'd been programmed and it was absent for 16 years at this time, it was a place where it was safe. It was not safe then. And um, I realized uh, God let, taught me a, a painful lesson. You put all your eggs in one basket. You put all your, your, your safety in, in these people, and some of them are drunk on food, and they're not going to be safe. And some of them will turn and be vicious and gossip and try to uh, create an image of you that's not, that's not true. And in that, I had to let go of this childish view of a way painful as it was, and then come around in a circle. Everything has been a lesson. Everything. And so what is it that is the answer? Acceptance is the answer. Anything that happens to me, God then works through me in a magic way 
to I heal and then go on and give that healing to, away to somebody else. And it, it's just unbelievable. And my personality today, um, I'm still um, a strong personality, but there is heart in it now. And and I cry. I never cried before. And uh, and uh, my heart is leading the way. And it has now made me a complete person. Um, to be comfortable with uncomfortability, be comfortable with ambiguity, be comfortable with nuances, be comfortable with uncertainty, that is spiritual maturity. And that's where I live. Never would have wanted to live there. I was never wanting and didn't do it. But now I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. And that is acceptance. Life is life. And I'm blessed to be part of life. So with that, I'll turn it over to Leah if anybody wants to ask any questions or make comments. Thank you so much, Ruth. Such a blessing to hear your story of transformation this morning. Truly miraculous, truly riveting, truly beautiful. The share ID for this morning's presentation, 17,463. That's 17463. Ruth's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to question and answer segment. You can pose a question, questions only, please, to Ruth by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name and including the last let your the first letter of your last name please Marcia D Marcia C Tara C Leia S Pete B Pete B Jason Jason K Jason K All right that's a good group to start with we have Marcia D Tara C Leia S Pete B Jason K Anybody else want to get in? At Christina J. Christina J. And I miss the other. Jody E. And Jody E. Excellent. Okay, we'll stop there. Everybody, please mute except for Marcia D. Can I be heard? I hear you. Marcia, go ahead. Marsha, star one, ten mute. Okay, third time's a charm. Well, good morning. Um, Ruth, thank you so much for your heartfelt share. Um, and just as an aside, I'm curious how many of us ended up as social workers with all these things in life that we've gone through. So at any rate, my question is just, you know, where are you today with your whole higher power? How did you form your conception of that in your recovery? Um, well, it evolved. It was pretty um, primitive. I basically, at the very beginning, just did the steps the way Joe and Charlie, I just did those steps. And in doing them, God, I found God um, because God came through. God came through like when I did my fourth step. God came through when I did my ninth step. God came through when I was doing 10, 11, and 12. And so bit by pit, bit, little, it was like breaking down this um, armor I put on myself. Just a little piece, little piece, little piece. And so I can't say it was this very evolved and 
woo, spiritual advanced thought. It wasn't like that at all. It was very concrete, seeing miracles happening in me and those around me. And it became uh, just a very intimate, close, more than a friend. It's just a very intimate, direct relationship with God. It's like God's my best friend, but it's more than that. God, God is in charge of everything, and I just, um, I just break out in tears just seeing all the miracles God performs. And um, God forgave me for treating him so badly for so many years. Uh, and I, I heard one time uh, this guy Chuck C. He was in. Uh, he told a story in AA, and he said that it was an event, and it was like coming. It was about lunchtime, and he was about going out with some friends. And this new, new newcomer came up and said, "Said you know why God? You know why we can't find God?" Chuck C. Why? He goes, and the guy said, "Because God's not lost." <laughs> this little newcomer got it right. And God was never lost. So I was the one that was lost. And being lost, I just came home to God. I just came home. Um, so my relationship is just um, deeper. It's just much deeper. It just keeps getting deeper. Um, I just get more. I trust God. I trust God completely. Um, well, I can't say completely. Sometimes I can get a little wacky. But even then, I know I'm off base. I need to get back in with God, and so uh, it's just a direct, intimate relationship with God that's always there. I don't know really how to describe it because it's really greater than words. Thank you, Marsha D., for the question. Tara C., your turn. This is Sarah C. Sarah C. And um, Ruth, um, the first thing I wanted to say to you is thank you so much and to acknowledge what a friggin' gift you were to all those kids that you worked with. And um, so uh, just a gift. My question to you is, um, I have, was listening to a speaker yesterday who suggested that when I'm irritated, I dropped the focus on the source and turned completely inside to the irritation, what got triggered, uh, and just to, that, that it's not about the source in the same way that it wasn't about the food. And um, to just uh, do the reflection, feel the feelings, and uh, focus on my internal experience because that's the only thing. Okay. Sorry, I didn't hear the question. Sarah, we lost you. Was there a question you wanted to pose? Sir, one to unmute, Sarah. Can you hear me now? I hear you now. Awaiting your question, Sarah. Sorry, okay. The question is um, that when we're disturbed, we're directed to not focus on the source of the disturbance, to just go within, feel whatever the disturbance is about, and reflect on that because that's the only place that we have any agency in um, working it through with our higher power. And I just wondered if you could talk about how that plays out for you. 
Well, I think the best example was the example I gave about my mom. Uh, I thought that everything in life that I struggled over was her fault. So it was external. It was out there. And yet it wasn't. It was completely me and my resentment towards her. So it is. Um, I look at the term principles before personalities in Tradition 12. I mean, it's in, it's in the traditions. But for me, focus always on the principles of the program and not on the personalities. Uh, so it's just kind of a mantra for me. Uh, I, and I've learned the more I farther along, what triggers me is unresolved issues from the past that have not healed. So uh, one of the things that happened when my, after my mom left, dad had to find somebody to kind of do some, you know, mothery things. And this woman was very, very abusive, not physically, but verbally. And she told me, I'm sure more than 100 times, that I was ugly and I was stupid. She kept saying it over and over. She never touched me. And I'm like, well, I'm not ugly and stupid. But what happened was then that was a trigger. When somebody would say something to me, I could even take it out of context and become defensive and attack the, and, and to come out in an attack mode. And so when that situation I mentioned where somebody saying something that wasn't true and was claiming something about me, I wanted to judge her, even though I'd been absent for years. And, but, but at that time, God said, no, this is enough. You, you're, you're, you're supposed to not even be judging people anymore. You don't need to forgive them if you don't judge them. And so that taught me, now you've got to do that all the time. So uh, for me, I just think it's, it's, it's principles. And what are the principles? Before, before the 12 steps were written in December of 38, they had no, they had no steps. And the Oxford group had these four absolutes. And those four absolutes are humility, unselfishness, love, purity. That's, those are the four absolutes. And they tried to live by them. And on the very bottom of 13, top of 14, it says the essential requirements are humility, honesty, and willingness. Uh, so there they are. There's honesty again. So I, I'm trying to always come back to those principles because that's where God is. And uh, if I come to those principles, then it's not personalities at all. So for me, it isn't. It, you're right. What you said is true. It's not the personalities. It's not the other person. It's not the situation. It's not anything external. My disturbance is within me. Spiritual axiom on page 90 and A's 12 and 12. Every time you're upset, there's something wrong with you. So, um, so you're right. So we just simply have to stop all this chatter, all this stuff that interferes with God not coming through us, and when I calm down and let God come through me, my God, it's very intuitive. I, I, I didn't think I was intuitive at all. I am intuitive because I, I get God's energy to direct me in what to do. And, uh, and then there's no need to be disturbed because uh, the, just, it's me self-creating it. And so that's correct. I agree with you. We just have to focus on what's going on within us that causes us to be upset or fearful or any other character defect we have. Thank you, Sarah C., for your question. Leah S., your turn. Hi, everyone. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning, Leah. Thank you. Um, my question is, how is your relationship with your siblings today? Um, or well, are you even in touch with them? Yeah, uh, my relationship with my siblings, as I just mentioned in the previous question, it's really about me. 
Um, my sibling, my siblings are my siblings. They are what you would expect being raised as they were raised, and each is, you know, trying to raise themselves. So each of them uh, has gotten some addiction um, or more, <laughs> all of them. Uh, so I just happen to be food. Um, but a lot of alcoholism. Um, in the five of us, only one had children, and she married an alcoholic. And his father was an alcoholic. And it, it, it was just to watch um, my nieces and nephew um, the oldest is not, but the others very probably are alcoholic and uh, younger. And and then I see the great nieces, nephews. So to watch it being passed from gener- generation to generation is. But for me, I joke about it. I have a quota with my my family. I do see them occasionally, but I don't see them regularly because I don't. I'm not. I don't want to fall into all this criticism and this judgment and this gossip and. And if I go see them, I try to get there not late at all. And by the time they start getting drunker, then I'm leaving. I'm not going to stay as they get drunker through the uh, day. So I, I occasionally see them a few times a year. Recently, because of the situation, learning about what had happened at my father's death, I've had more contact with them. But uh, I do. the point is it's not my siblings. The issue is, do I come to them with love? Yes, I love them all. Now, do I like them? No, I no, I really don't like them. But I do love them. I love them because they are doing the best they could with how they were raised and then how my one sister raised her children. It's understandable. So I, I'm 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 a good relationship because a good relationship comes from my heart, and I do I do love them, and I do want the best for them. I want nothing negative for them. Um. And I'm kind of the weird one, you know. Okay, fine. Um, that's okay. Uh, my path was to t- the path I was to take, and I'm fine with my path. And they're taking their path. So the answer is uh, I do love them, and so it's a great relationship because of my feelings towards them, regardless of what they're doing. Thank you, Leah S., for your question. Pete B., you're up. Thank you, Leah. <clears throat> Uh, thanks for your service. My name is Pete B. I'm a compulsive overeater recovered today by God's roasted grace and mercy. Ruth, that was a fantastic message. It had depth and weight, and I believe you were wondering if uh, you wanted, in the beginning, you had an intention, and I believe that your intention was met. It was, it, uh, it was super, super clear. Uh, my question is, um, you know, throughout your talk, you talked about your alcoholic mind and alcoholic personality. And I'm just curious, how did you conclude that that's what you had? Like, what, what did you compare it to? Like, how do you know that, that that's just not the mind that you have and that's what you're supposed to have? And with that, I'll pass. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think just um, learning it from others. You know, I, I have attended a lot of open A meetings, um, so it's not just OA. Uh, and those people there that are recovered um, and telling their stories uh, and people in OA that are recovered and telling their stories, that's how it started. I mean, I mean, I started with this idea, how in the world can I stay abstinent? So I go talk to these people seven and eight years abstinent. How did you stay abstinent? So I've always gone to uh, people like that and almost always there to interview people. People, and so it was. And the stories in the big book. Um, Joe and Charlie told uh, one of those times when I can't remember if it was Kansas City or Tulsa when we spent the weekend with them. But one of them, us so took them to breakfast Sunday morning, 
and we got a one-on-one -on -one with him and uh, you know some personal stories and how did they get through things. And uh, one of the stories that was so meaningful for me, um, Joe and Charlie, Joe was an Afro-American and uh, he was the very first Afro-American AA member in Arkansas. He lived in Little Rock, Arkansas. He comes to AA 6162. Well, we can, if we can remember what happened at Central High School in 1957. Uh, the you know, National Guard with their guns pointed at white people so those black students could get into that high school. So Joe shows up at AA. And uh, so I asked him, I said, well, what, what um, you know, I asked him what happened as far as, you know, being, you being black and, 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 you know, what did you have to do? And he says to me, and I, I mean, this is right out, right out, directly out of his mouth. He said, well, I knew two things I had to do when I came to AA. The first thing I knew, never to get in that, never walk into that meeting until the meeting started. And as soon as the meeting, get out of that room. You see, it was segregated before the meeting. It was segregated after the meeting, but it was not segregated during the meeting. And the second thing he said, I knew not to go over to that coffee pot and get a cup of coffee either. I knew never to do that. So, you know, here you could have a Ku Klux member sitting next to Joe in a meeting in AA. And, and still he was able to be there. He was allowed to be there. He got support, and he got recovered. And he died sober decades later. I mean, I'm like, wow. I mean, what you went through. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, we, we don't even know that history about A. How that happened, you know, in the Deep South. People that were not white. And uh, his story was one of those. Um, he doesn't really ever talk. He didn't, I don't think he doesn't. I've never known him to talk about that in his talk. But, but that was part of it. So I, I'm saying, Pete, we, we learn these stories, and it's, it's very inspiring. So um, um, I was inspired uh, by people I meet like that. I, that's how I, I think. It's just a guy with skin on is how I've been mostly inspired. Thank you, Pete. Jason Kay, your turn. Um, recovered here outside of Philadelphia. Ruth, thank you so much. Um, just wondering about this relationship between um, acceptance is the answer, and we want to on this course of vigorous action and action amongst more actions. Sometimes this acceptance thing to me suggests passivity and um, just yeah, passivity, not acting, sort of going into my mind, thinking things through, trying to come to a resolution. How, how do you kind of bridge those two things or sort of, I think you kind of talked to it a little bit indirectly, but I'm curious if you um, want to talk to that seeming contradiction. Ruth? I mean, what the question was. I was having trouble hearing that, so... Uh, Jason was asking about um, acceptance, that oftentimes we think of acceptance as um, a passive type of uh, mode versus rigorous action where we are responsible for our recovery, and how do you merge those two together? Okay, great, thanks. Um, well, 
Um, definitely, uh, the example with my uh, going to make an amends with my mother, I did not want to do it, and I did want to do it, and I did want to do it, and I didn't want to do it. So it's not passive. Uh, it's I'm in, I'm in. Once I accept something I don't want to do but know it's right, and then I really want to do it, that 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 issue, even just being entirely absent, the people struggling with that, a lot of people in program. Are you going to accept who you are? Or are you not going to accept? You're going to have to accept this 100% with absolute perfection. It says so on page 68 in A's 12 and 12. So I, I don't think that it's passive. I think uh, when we want to have self-will, when self-will wants to resurrect itself, even if it's kind of been laying dormant, and the other part of us wants to be doing God's will, we get into our own internal battle over that. And maybe it's a small battle and it's easily decided. No, acceptance for me, has not been uh, skipping through the two lots, oh, life is great, and blah, blah, blah. you know, no, I, I, have the, I have the attic mind. And so my acceptance has always been the other side. It's like, what do I do? Do I do God's will here? Do I do my will? And it's easier and easier as I get farther in program to do my will, and I don't have many of these battles, but I would never claim it's a, a passive activity. It's an active decision. Well, I accept. I actively decided to do it after I've been not willing to do it, and so I don't find it as a passive. I don't find it passive at all. Thank you, Jason K., for the question. Christina J., your question, please. Good morning. Christina J. from the state of Washington here. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Ruth. I was uh, riveted to every word I related to a lot of your journey, especially in childhood, uh, different kind of abuse, but same thing. I was going to get out there and take care of it and do it, and you know, but anyway. I would love to know what your morning, excuse me, your, yeah, your morning step 11 looks like. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so with me, I have, um, it's, I have certain prayers I'll do. I mean, there are four prayers. We know them. Third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, the serenity prayer, and the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, or some people call it the Step 11 prayer, which is on page 99 in A's 12 and 12. Um, so those are the prayers uh, I, I give. And then meditation, just time with God. And I, I could like to tell you that it's, I'm in an altered state the whole time, but no, that's not true. Uh, I can still come out and then have to come on back. Um, so for me, it's just time with God. God doesn't need. I don't. I don't find that God needs um, me to be there for Him to say something to me. Sometimes I'm supposed to just be in God's presence, and we don't say anything. There's no thought really. It's just quiet. Now that would drive me crazy early on, but sometimes it's just quiet. Quiet, um, and sometimes too. Um, sometimes meditation doesn't have to be. It can be active, is what they call it. And sometimes I, which is not necessarily in the morning, but sometimes I'll go to cer- certain cl- couple places I have. Where I'll go and I'll just walk there in nature and uh, be connected with nature and God, and that's profound too. Just to be, I, I live. Um, I could actually walk from my home and walk down to the Mississippi River. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, so I mean, in less than five minutes, I'm right at the Mississippi River for, uh, at a spot that I like. And um, it just used to be where there with the river. is is very, 
beautiful. And to know it um, every, because I'm there usually every every it once every Sunday morning. I'll be going there after this with a group of Native people. Uh, I'm part of a Native circle here in St. Louis. And to be there uh, with the water, blessing the water, letting the water talk to us. Uh, and I do it sometime even. That's a great gift. So I, my meditation is really trying to be at one with God. And nature is God talking to me. And I'm talking back to God. And uh, But in, in the way I live my life. So uh, I, it's just me. It's, it's the prayer meditation. Just to spend the half hour every day just alone with God. Uh, now, even somebody calls me. You know, let's say it's, uh, I get a call from. Tw- I don't pick up the phone. I, it's my. It's my time. I cannot interrupt my time. So, uh, if you call me during my half hour meditation, I'm. Uh, it's. It's not going to happen. I just. That's. That's my time with God. I can't not not do it. Um, so I think it's the uh, quality that gets so much deeper when you're committed to being with God. God can come through. Although God comes through all the time in so many ways. So, have it pass. Thanks, Christina. Jody E., your turn. Jody E., star one to unmute. I'm sorry, here I am. This is Jody E. Thank you both for your service, for your wonderful service. I really enjoyed that, Ruth. Ruth, it sounded like your experience in those OA meetings in your hometown where you were not liked, and Joe's experience in Arkansas as the only black man were similar experiences. And I can relate to that. I I have not always felt that OA was a safe place for me either. Um, how how are you? How have you made peace with that? How have you? How did you go through your service at the world service level? Did it feel like that there too? That's my question. Yeah. So um, when I said Border for Seas, I meant Border for Seas at for inner group in St. Louis. Um, what I was talking about, not the Border for Seas at World Service level. Um, I've done some things, but I have not done that. Um, so I think uh, one of the things I did uh, was I wanted to make sure I did not entangle any people local in this situation here because. It, it would have been, uh, I'm getting my troops on my side, and they're getting their troops on their side. And it, I knew uh, that that could really split into two camps and be very destructive for OA here. So I made sure that I um, I had, a, a, you know, a couple people here, but they weren't talking to anybody else. So there was none of that. I was not going to do what they were doing, which is trying to run and tell everybody how bad I was. Um, so, uh, but I got some support from people that did not live in St. Louis, and I did talk to them. So in addition to the two people here, then I had some people in a way, and I had my sponsor also, um, which at, at that point, she had moved here for a long time, but then eventually retired and went to live, you know, where her family was. So I stayed, I stayed with her as, uh, as 
sponsoree. So, um, so I, that gave me some balance. Um, and then to learn that I, the problem was me um, being putting too much reliance on them as feeling safe and secure as I define what was safe and secure. That was my issue. And not being more aware of when one is in the food, how sick, even though I'd been in the food, but it had been years, to come home to the reality that that can be um, pretty sick, pretty um, destructive of relationships. Sometimes not intentionally. I, I don't think they were like, I'm, we're going to get, I mean, they were upset. And my sponsor is very clear. She says, the reason they're doing that is because you're absent and they're not. That's what it is. And, uh, and so uh, and that was true. And so I, it would eventually wear itself out. Uh, that group disbanded. Uh, none of those people are attending early today. Um, I've gone on. Um, so time, I think time just healed it. And a more reasonable awareness of the way, making me more passionate to get into our abstinence to work this program because then changes do happen. And you're less likely to maintain that stance. Now, I, I, I had one sponsor who was very rageaholic, even though he's recovered, but she never really got rid of that. And uh, But usually there is a, uh, a radical rearrangement of ideas, motives, and attitudes, which used to guide us or cast aside that something vastly different take their place, like it says on page 25 and 27 in the big book. It does happen for the vast majority of us. So um, it was just time, just working with people that loved me and, and uh, supported me in the process. And then I could talk to people outside of OA, too, that weren't part of the 12-step program. They understood it only to a certain level. So, But I, I did reach out to those that were able to help me, that were recovered, um, and by their help. And God's grace, you know, I, I weathered it. But you know what had happened was, and that was God's gift, because in May of 2003, I said, I want to uh, let, lead with the heart. So guess what happened? I come home, and this breaks open. So what happened was, you want to lead by your heart. We're going to show you what happens when you lead by your heart. That, that's what God was letting me know. This is what happens when you lead by your heart, and you're going to get through this, and now you'll be even more committed to lead with your heart. And I didn't understand that at the time, but to looking back, I realized that was God's gift. It's always God's gift. Every time I have any struggle, I realize I've, I've created it, and I see the gift that comes from it. God's made me a more uh, refined more spiritually mature person by giving me this issue. It, that's always true. Thank you, Jody E., for the question. We have time for two more questions. Anyone else have a question? Two more names. Who's L? Jen, Jen H. Who's H? Jen. H. Okay. Duel and Jason H. I believe. Duel, go ahead with your please. Thank you so much, um, Ruth, for that amazing personal story. I feel like I'm one of those children that you helped to save through your experience. Um, my question to you is. I was wondering if. Uh oh, I don't have any. I'm not hearing anything. 
Do star one unmute. Okay. Can you hear me now? I hear you now. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Ruth, for that amazing, amazing story. Um, uh, I was saying that uh, I feel like I'm one of those children that was saved by your personal experience. And my question to you is, I was wondering if you could share the three little fish story to show that God is all around. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the three little fish story. Uh, Anyway, this is a story uh, Chuck C. gave, uh, a little story. But uh, the story is there was these three little fish swimming around in the ocean. I'm going to make him women, not men, because he's an AA. Okay. There's these three little fish swimming around in the ocean, and they're having a good little time. And this old, wise fish comes swimming up, and she says to him, Oh, oh, the water is fine. It's a mighty fine day. And she swims off. And the first little fish says to the second little fish, Do you know where water is? The second little fish says, I don't know what water is. So the second little fish says to the third little fish, do you know what water is? The third little fish says, I have no idea. And the third little fish says to the first little fish, do you know what water is? first little fish says, I don't know what water is. And they spent the rest of their life looking for water. And so that's our story sometimes in program. We spend our whole life looking for water and we're swimming in it and don't know, the, and don't know it. The, pro, the solution is the water and we're the fish. Will we just accept it? Thank you, Do. Our final question, I believe, comes from Ken WH. Is there a Ken WH? Jen H. Okay, Jen H. Go ahead, please. Thank you. I heard, I heard at a conference uh, a speaker say that she has newcomers listen to two podcasts about abstinence, yours and someone else's, to see which one scares them and which one they resonate with. So my question is, have you, um, is there any change that you've made in how you sponsor people regarding their abstinence, or have you, um, just to speak about any changes or not that you may have encountered? Because I found it a sort of an amusing presentation the person gave. Thank you. And I ask this with great appreciation and respect. Um, so the I, I, the message is the same. The messenger has changed. Um, the message is entire accident. Um, that's what I got from you know Joe and Charlie, the big book, reading Doctor Silkworth. It is entire abstinence. Um, that's not changed. The messenger has changed in um, my awareness of. Um, entire abstinence and well I guess the key is how do people uh, process information you know I when I originally sponsored people I would do it as I was taught and I replicated it but today people can learn in different ways and I need to be expansive in um, how I present the information not the message but the how I do it for example uh, some people want to read doctor's opinion and they want to go each paragraph in real in-depth and really understand it and through that one time and they got it. Another, another because they're into details and then they get the big picture. But other people get the big picture and they later want to know the details. So for those people, I say, why don't you just read it every day, the whole thing, and tell me what you're getting out of it. And then 
by the end of this week, you've read it every day. And if there's something you haven't mentioned, I might point it out. So we both got through it, but one read it seven times and one only read it once. You see what I'm saying? So I had to learn uh, ways to do it. Other people learn better if they listen. So go listen to Joe and Charlie. Some people learn better reading. Some people learn better writing. Some people learn better in different approaches. So my message has expanded in how I present it relative to how they best learn the message and how they um, process that. That's what I would say has changed. But the key message of entire abstinence is still entire abstinence. It does, that doesn't change. The big book is the big book. And um, so um, I'm, I'm still staunch about doing it according to the big book. Thank you, Jen H., for the question. Of course, thank you to everybody who posed questions this morning. And thank you so much, Ruth, for giving so much of yourself to all of us this morning. Thanks for delivering a message of depth and weight. We appreciate you and your higher power showing up for all of us this morning. The share ID for today 17,463, that's 17463, and we're going to close now from page 164 from a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only, we realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.